You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane, and today we have switched bodies. Yeah, decapitated both and just moved the heads around. Now I get to be in Florida, you get to be in Nevada. Yeah, and so you don't really know who's saying what at this point in time. I could be Abraham, I could be Shane, we don't know. Either way, you have a beard and I don't, because my head does not have a beard. (laughs) (laughs) My head has longer hair than your head. Yeah. Both of these bodies have a lot of tattoos. Yeah, it's par for the course. So, we're close to the same height. Yeah, the only thing that's changed is that I now have a different appreciation for the different part of the atmosphere, because I'm a little closer to the clouds than I was before. (laughs) The lungs in your new body are a little bit more acclimated to humidity. It's fair. I mean, I was sort of born in it, but why are we talking about this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, just, well, I don't know. It does relate to our episode. <laughs> it does. But I really like that answer. <laughs> I forgot what we were talking about for a second. Anyway, we are talking about whether it would work to have a head transplant. Could you take one head and put it on a different body? And maybe switch, but probably what happened is you have a patient and they need a new body for various reasons we'll get into, and then it you find a donor body and the head goes onto that body. That's sort of the idea of this. So has it been done? Would it work? What are the implications? I think the fact that we're asking this question and probably a general understanding of what's going on in the world in the vaguest sense tells you that this has never happened before. So we can spoil that part right now. This has never been accomplished. Yeah. Not on a live person, but we'll get to that. These are one of my dives, like the the dives that I like into our science, which is like those hypothetical things that we should probably not do. I always like kind of like the idea of like AI when we talk about this later, like, you know, the whole thing with Skynet and all that fun stuff. Like I, I think about this a lot where it's like, there are just some questions in science that don't need answered. And I feel like this is one that (laughs) is somebody that's on the line. It's like, can we? And there's nobody going, but should we? Yeah. And we're doing really good at sort of teasing upcoming episodes lately. That's been like a thing. So yeah, be on the lookout. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Isaac Asimov. So this is another one where the question actually is not as straightforward as it seems. And there's a few things to answer. So when we talk about a head transplant, are you finding a new head for your body? Is that what the transplant entails? Or are you trying to find a new body for your head? Now, most of the time, people would lean toward the latter, which is to say you're probably trying to find a new body for your current head. And that is, in fact, what we're mostly talking about. But just something to to think about. We're also not talking about explicitly a brain transplant, although we are going to talk about that, too. Because if by head transplant, do you mean brain or do you mean actual the physically the physical structure of the head? Jaw, ears, necklaces, all things come right the with the entire it. package. Yeah. Necklaces. <laughs> Whatever makeup you're wearing at the time. It all goes. It all goes. It's an all or none package. That's right. I mean, we also have to ask a question like, why would anybody want this? Right. So like when you start thinking about this, why is this the thing? Like, do you just need like a better body? Or is your head not comfortable on the body you have? <laughs> this actually I think does speak to the should we. And essentially, there might be a cosmetic reason you would think of. It's like, well, 
Like I really want to be on someone who's taller or I really want to be on a body that's a lot more muscular without doing the work of working out, which believe me is a thousand times easier than getting a head transplant. Probably less painful and less painful and substantially cheaper. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking about that. Like you you go in for like a head transplant consultation because, you know, there's a lot of like cosmetic surgery in Miami, like going in there and being like talking to a doctor and getting a consult. And like I think about like, you know, when when people go in and they get the plastic surgery and they draw all over them, like what does the line look like? Do they just draw a circle, like a dotted line around your neck? And you're like, this is where we cut. Yep. That's basically it. It's just how high, how much of your neck do you want to keep? That's really all you got to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's another question. Are we doing a neck and head transplant or is it just the head? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe you take a lot of the neck and then you put it on the mostly remaining parts of the neck of the other one. And you have a very long necked person like that could be a thing that happens. Yeah. So those are all cosmetic reasons. The actual reason that most people are proposing that is that there are a lot of diseases that cause you to lose control of your muscles in your body and where your muscle, your, your muscles. Why would I say that your muscles waste away and (laughs) you get a lot of degeneration, but otherwise you're neurologically completely fine. So if your brain is working fine, all of your perceptions are working fine, but the rest of your body is shutting down. Then if you have a donor body from, let's say a cadaver, you could potentially just snip that thing right off. As they say on the office, your, your kappa is detated (laughs) and move it over to this other body that has everything, all the muscles and all the organs and things could work just fine. They just need a brain to power it all. And so that that's one of the reasons that this is brought up at all. And I guess speaks to the should you, although it's still more complicated than that. And within that, too, like besides just the physical attempt to do this and like physical reasons why you might. Another question that we have to ask within this is, would you still be you? Like, are there any sort of challenges or any sort of concerns with like now you are living in an entirely different body, essentially? And like, would you still maintain the same faculties or would you go through some stuff as a result of the transition? Right. I mean, I would personally, if I got transitioned into another body, I would probably struggle a whole lot with the idea of now I've got different sensations. Now I've got like, I mean, I look at my hands and they're not my hands. Like I would probably have a really hard time with that. Yeah. And I, as you were speaking, I was just thinking of like feeling at home in your own skin and like how weird it would feel if it was like, this isn't mine. Like, I don't, I don't own any of this stuff. I didn't make any of it. But the other thing I was thinking is what do you call someone who has a new, like there would be a name. They would definitely come up with a name, right? Like you're a trans body. No, that wouldn't work. Yeah, that probably wouldn't work. No. Interbody? Interbody, maybe. Yeah. Frankenbody. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it, too, is like, is it like an Airbnb for bodies? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> well, and, and this is the thing. It's like when you start thinking about this, like, I mean, this is kind of us being aloof and, and being goofy. But like the seriousness of this is like, we don't really know what is going to happen if the science ever gets to a, a space where it's actually feasible, right? We don't know what the sensations or what the experience of the person who is transferred over, what that's going to look like. There are so many questions that we have to, have to ask around not only the physiology part of it, but the psychology part of it. This is a unique kind of thought experiment as we go through this. And, you know, we can kind of be goofy about it, but the seriousness of it is like, we just don't have, we have no idea what this could turn into. But we will speculate and we will also use some actual evidence from things that are related like prosthetics to talk about this. Yeah. The question, could this even work? We'll dive into a lot of the particulars of this. The short answer is no, but there is a lot more to dive into that. And then another question here, as I mentioned at the top of this, is what about a brain transplant? It is technically different, but mostly only in 
the sense that with a whole head transplant, you have all the casings and everything all there. And with a brain, you've got to remove it from at least your ears, if not probably also your eyes and then your olfactory senses. And with a head transplant, you ask, you have most of your senses still attached. With a brain transplant, you'd have you'd be trying to hook up not only the entire nervous system, but also all the other senses that would have been detached from that. And maybe you could keep the eyes, but even then, like uh, you were playing with a lot of danger there. So brain transplant is technically different, but the idea remains the same and the implications for it definitely are, are related to this. So, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of wiring to redo a lot, like so much more than it even sounds like. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little much. I mean, and then on top of that, so that's like just the physiology part of it, right? Like that's all the anatomy part of it. But like, there's also the question about legality. Like, where does the legality fall? Like, where does can wh- who is the legal guardian of the head? Like, who gets to make the consent decisions? Like, you know, is it the head or the body? There's so much within that that there's, there's just not really a great legal definition of that. So there is the legality in terms of like who who gets to make the decisions, but also the like the responsibility of like is the thing that was done. What name gets attributed to it? Is it the, the donor body? Is it the host body? Could you claim that the donor body is like doing things you didn't want it to do and have that be a legitimate <laughs> argument? If like something is done to the donor body and then you're like, wait a minute, like I should receive compensation. They're like, no, that's not even your body. That's someone else's body. You stay out of it. We would have to unpack that whole area. Well, and those sound like kind of, I don't want to say silly questions, but they are questions that people like that you have to sort out from the legal standpoint. Like you can't just leave those things hanging and and they may seem like kind of strange, but there's also laws where people can't put ice cream cones in their back pocket right now. So as, as we've discussed, as we've discussed, friend of the show, ice cream in the back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the one thing. It's the one thing I can't let go of. So within that space of like the idea of legality, we have to ask that question, but then We also have to ask the question of what about heads on robot bodies? Does that count? Where does that fall in line? I mean, you're talking, especially with like, you know, you're getting into this area of prosthetics where there are robotic mechanisms, there are electronic mechanisms, there are all these places where, you know, you start looking at this idea that you could possibly put, if you, if we can make transplants work and you can make an autonomous machine. Can you put a human head, a biological head on an autonomous machine and still have the same functions and the same legality and all the other things that go along with that? And honestly, from the research that I did on this, that might be easier than trying to put it on another human body. (laughs) (laughs) Which is wild to think that that's the easier way to go. Yeah, maybe not, but it seemed like it from what I read. Real quick, the scientific name for this, because you wouldn't just call it a head transplant if you're a scientist or a doctor, you get to use multi-syllabic words that make you sound smart. <laughs> that is one of the major advantages of getting a doctorate degree, everybody, just so you know. So anyway, this is called a cephalosomatic anastomosis as another name for this. Although I did see it also say, or transplant, <laughs> implying that an anastomosis was something different. I didn't really look up the etymology of those words. I just figured you'd want to know. So now you have that terminology. When you're a doctor, you can use them. But, you know, we have all these questions and we've kind of brought up some different concerns or some different implications or just different questions that we had within those questions, Try to trying to unpack this topic. But one thing we have to talk about is this idea of these possible complications. Like, what if the head doesn't wake up? Right. Yeah, this is, this is getting into... Like, could this work territory? Just going back to that question. And it's very likely that you never regain consciousness, in which case you you effectively killed that person. So that is a problem. 
There is also that, and one of the most likely things, that the body either rejects the head or the head rejects the body. This is something that's often faced when you have any kind of amputation, but with something as tremendously large and complex as a head, it is all the more robust. And I did see quite a bit, there was this whole idea of the head being, what was the word that they used? It was like, it was immune to this kind of thing. Like it was immune to being rejected, but that's actually not the case. It can happen. And we see this already when people go through surgeries that try to attach their own limbs, that their body may reject their own limbs. That's what happened with the drummer from Def Leppard. I did not know that, but wow. Yeah. When he lost his arm, he had it reattached and it didn't take. Yeah. Our bodies are complex machines that we don't fully understand yet. So that's why we have all these questions. So another one too, just from the psychological sense is you might lose your sense of self. Like I mentioned before, like when I look down at my hands, are these my hands? These aren't my own hands. Now things are a little bit complicated and people can go, they can have psychotic breaks as a result of this, or they could, because now they're just an entirely different person or just the experience of living in another body might be too much for the mind to handle. Right. And I mean, this whole idea or understanding how this works is You have one chemical environment that's in your brain and neck that's being attached to another chemical environment that is different in a different neck and body. You have a new physical environment, meaning there are going to be different dimensions of things. The bones are different sizes. The veins are different sizes. The muscles are arrayed in different ways than yours. And things just may not line up and match entirely. And so you got to try and like figure out how to stitch them together to make them all work so that this would even that this is even possible. And that's a tall order. Like, that's asking a lot. Thinking of a head transplant in general is already complex. Right. Now you add all the parts that actually make it complex, and it seems like an impossible feat given our current technology. I mean, just thinking about it, it's just complex. Doing it is a whole nother thing. So, <laughs> Right. That's what I'm saying. Speaking of doing it. Yeah. Let's get into the timeline here, because the question that probably arose when you're reading this is, have they tried this before? Have they tried it with humans? Have they tried it with animals? Have they tried it with cadavers? The answer is yes, except to humans live ones. So (laughs) let's go ahead and go through the timeline really quick. Yeah. So in 1908, Charles Guthrie tried to do this with a dog. It did not work. Failed experiment. Failed experiment. So that's the first time that we really have any sort of documentation that this was an attempt on in like a scientific way, right? That we have documented. It's very possible that like the Egyptians or probably the Romans or definitely the Germans were trying things like this at various points, but that's the first one that we, (laughs) sorry, Germany, (laughs) I totally didn't mean to throw you under the bus. That was, I mean, I I should have stuck with the kind of have the history. Yeah. Yeah. I should have stuck with the the ones that were (laughs) more or less gone at this point. Anyway, that's the first one we definitely have on record was that one. In 1970, I didn't catch the name of the researcher, but another researcher did try this with a monkey, which makes sense. You know, we're primate to primate. I understand the connection. Interestingly, the monkey did live for a little over a week. It lasted eight days. They said that it lived with, quote unquote, restored functions, and they included things like its tastes were there, its sense of temperature was there, its vision was there. And I had two questions there which is how do you know that its taste was the same and its sense of temperature was the same? And also most of the senses that you're referring to were on the head. So that wasn't really the senses we were concerned about. What we're more concerned about is like, are the organs working? Can it coordinate its muscles? Those kind of things. And that wasn't really clearly answered. It just said essentially it did successfully take for a period of a week. So there's that. Okay. So there is like, some precedent for what we're talking about. Yeah. 
And so now we'll get into the guy who is most prominently known about this in contemporary research, if you will. I'm forgetting his last name, but everyone just refers to him by his last name, which is Canavero. And he's done quite a bit with this as well. Yeah, so Canavero did this on a monkey as well. The monkey that they conducted the research on never regained consciousness and would have been paralyzed had it actually regained consciousness. And it actually died 20 hours later. So again, a failed experiment. And one thing to say too, it's uncomfortable and it's not something that we even like talking about as animal research. It's just, this is, we're trying to report like research history at this point in time. Yeah. Interestingly, he did report this as being somewhat successful, which is confusing to me for a number of reasons. He also did try a head transplant on a rat, but this was a very strange experiment where what I read is he actually grafted, he took a severed rat head, he grafted that severed rat head onto a full rat that still had its head to turn it into a two-headed rat with a dead severed cadaver rat head attached to it. So as far as I could tell from that report, it was not a functional rat head. It was like a, here's a cadaver appendage hanging off the side of you that has eyes and teeth and a nose, which is not something (laughs) like that is the stuff nightmares are made of. So yes. Also would probably make a very good death metal album cover. It would. Yeah. Go nuts guys. (laughs) (laughs) Where are you obituary? That's sort of the history of his experimentation with this up to actually trying this with humans. Now, again, he even referred to his rat experiment here with the grafting of the severed head as being successful. But again, I don't know what his qualifications here are for success. And I don't mean to belittle like there are plenty of people who are excited about his research. I'm just looking at that and it seems less than ideal for moving forward with human trials. Right. So, I mean, I guess the only way I could see that maybe he's identifying successful is like that he was able to attach certain like maybe nerves like or maybe blood vessels. Maybe he was able to get blood pumping through the appendage. Like, I mean, those are maybe indicators of some level of success. But to me, I would still have a hard time calling that success in general, because maybe that was the aim of what they were trying to do for that study. But it still doesn't seem to meet the expectation of what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. And it also doesn't seem like it does not point us toward like, oh, we can start trying this with humans now. Right. And that tells us we're not even close. Right. So in 2017, they started doing this with human cadavers, though. Yeah. So this was Ren and colleagues. Ren is, well, he was a Jedi. (laughs) So he just used a lightsaber and just demanded first author credit. Totally kidding. These were some researchers, I believe, out of China and Canaveros out of Italy. They coordinated together to work on this because there was an opportunity for him to get research funding to do this in China. And so they spent 18 hours doing this with a cadaver. And really, this was sort of a proof of concept that wanted to show, could we do this? And so they spent 18 hours under the knife with these cadavers, and they had several surgeries that, again, you don't really think about until you really have to dig into the weeds of what's going on here. They have to retouch the bones in the neck. They have to reattach all the veins that connect the major arteries and and get blood flowing consistently throughout the bodies. There's gastrointestinal surgery, meaning they have to be able to reattach the trachea and the esophagus and that all those things flow seamlessly into one another as much as possible. They also have to attach all the relative nerves. And this is actually one of the trickiest parts is they have got the entire central nervous system that's got to be able to be uh, attached from the severed head to the body of the cadaver. So that presumably, were they alive, 
that those nerves could heal together and you would get coordination across those systems. Right. This is also just looking at what they have to connect. This doesn't talk about the tricky part, which is they have to keep the body and the head alive during this process. Yes, a very good point that we're also going to talk a little bit more about how that works. But yeah. <laughs> so just one consideration here, looking at something like a face transplant, kind of a weird thing. It seems like that definitely should be an album name or something, but that is something that people actually do. There are plastic surgeons who aesthetically will do face transplants. The movie Face Off depicted this very accurately and just <laughs> cut a circle, just peel it off, stick it on someone else's. Totally kidding. They were way. <laughs> thank you, Nick Cage. And thank you, John Travolta yeah. for a wonderfully fun movie. Yes. Wildly off on that. That was not even remotely close to accurate. Yeah. But face transplants are something that we can do, and they are extremely difficult. They're notoriously difficult to accomplish. And that's not trying to attach all the different senses and motor coordination to the, the rest of the body. So if that's really difficult, like how close can we really be with the example of the cadavers? And with the cadavers, we couldn't test any of those systems. It was really just about can we make those connections, not do they work after we've done them. And so we still are several steps away from really being able to demonstrate this. And Canavero did say he's got a lot of volunteers from people who are in a vegetative state, but I don't think that people who are in a vegetative state can be volunteers for something like this. Could you imagine being the power of attorney for somebody who's in a vegetative state and you're like, yes, sign them up. Yeah, you can use their body. Sure. Just let me have the head. That's a whole nother can of worms. When we get to our series on serial killers, yeah, that's a whole thing. So I guess the question comes down to this. Like, so we know what kind of the general idea of what a head transplant would be, right? You're basically taking a head and putting it on a different body. But how does this actually work? Okay, so presumably you've got to have a donor body of some kind. You probably don't want it to be in terrible condition. For some reason, they specifically say in this article I was looking at that the recommendations from Canavero himself is that they should be about the same height. But that raises an important point. What's the point in getting a new body if you have to be the same height? Wouldn't we all want to be taller? Yeah, Skilo is so bummed about that recommendation. <laughs> I mean, and I also am imagining there's like this sudden black market for like tall, young, healthy cadavers. So <laughs> yeah, look out high school basketball players. Yeah, I was gonna say like at one point in time, Kevin Nash, the wrestler, would be in trouble because he's about seven foot something. There you go. People are just going to start picking off all these young, tall, healthy people and selling their, their bodies as cadavers for the rich paying clients who want to put their head on a different body, I guess. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds like a, such a gross movie. Yeah. So anyway, so one of the requirements here, you have the donor body that's about the same height. Yeah. And you also, they aim to have the same immunotype, which makes sense from the rejection standpoint. Like you don't want there to be any complications with those chemical environments that are different. You want them to be as similar as possible. Right. And then... Presumably the body is in pretty healthy condition. So if you were to transplant a head into a body that's dying of cancer, like you didn't buy very much time. And kind of probably defeats the point. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, if you wanted to die of cancer, there are lots of ways to go about doing that. So you wouldn't want to do a head transplant. Anyway, <laughs> that's how it would have to work from the perspective of the donor body. But then you've got the patient head. Because one of the things you have to keep in mind is that the brain has to be kept alive during surgery and the recommendation is to be kept at about 10 or 15 degrees Celsius consistently with no drops in temperature beyond that. And that also means that the brain has got to receive a steady state of blood and oxygen at the very least, if not other nutrients and important chemicals to keep it working 
so that it doesn't die while it's out while the head is no longer attached to a body that normally supplies it with all of those things. Right. And then within that too, another complication is going back to that issue of the immune system, right? So the immune system has to be suppressed to prevent rejection when the head is transplanted onto the body. So there is like, now you've got temperature, now you've got oxygen and blood. Now you've got a suppressed immune system on top of all the other stuff that we're about to talk about. And there's not even a guarantee that suppressing the immune system is going to assure that there won't be a rejection. There still could be a rejection, even with the suppressed immune system, even with the same immune system type. Right. And then, as I said, you have to connect neurons to the central nervous system. This is like the most critical part, because if you put a head on a new body, but you can't coordinate the parts of that body, well, then you may as well just have a head with no body. Right. Because there's there's no point in it being there otherwise. And even in the report from Canavero was that only 10 to 15% of the nerves were restored. And I mean, I don't really know what that amounts to, but that seems like way too few to say that this is at a point of like trying this at a living person. Maybe that's a, an improvement from zero, which has maybe been the historical case. We don't know. I mean, going back to the idea of like, what's his criterion for success? Yeah. But still, it doesn't seem like it's anywhere close to where we need to be for this to be a thing. Right. And then the last thing you need are these things called fusogens, which I, I believe are some kind of hormone or something. And But anyway, the point is that they're supposed to accelerate the process of refusing the nerves so that you can attach them back together. And that way you can promote the regrowth that would allow the two parts to sort of come together. Right. And that's just some of the things that you need for this to work. I mean, the, there is a lot going on here. I mean, you need tools that are more advanced than the ones we have now. You need extreme precision. You need a lot of time spent on this and tons of resources like this. This is a this is a asking a lot. Yeah. Our bodies are designed in a, in a pretty effective way that they're really not meant to be. They're not. We're not Legos. We're not modular. You can't <laughs> pop off one piece and put on a different one. That's just not how we work. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly complex process as it is. Nerves by themselves are an incredibly complex and we understand so little about nerves and how they work and how to connect them. Just that alone is one of the obstacles that we face here. I do want to say, like, I don't want to disparage at all the fact that, like, we have there's been some amazing work done with transplanting organs, with amputating limbs, with prosthetics. Like, I, we're not trying to criticize any of that. Like, we're not saying that you should never do anything because it's like, quote unquote, unnatural or something. We're really just saying that with respect to a head transplant, this is so complicated. This is not something you can take lightly. You've got to, like, make a thousand assurances before we even begin to attempt this with someone and, like, demonstrate success on every single level conceptually. I think mathematically, if you were like models on a computer or something with dummies, with cadavers, like it's got to be perfect before we ever try to do this with the living host. Well, right. The risk is too high. I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. The risk is too high. Like there is right now a 100% chance that you will die if you do this. There's just no way we can do this right now. Yes. You would just be decapitated. That would be it. And like they would then take your decapitated head and sew it onto a cadaver's body like on Game of Thrones. Spoiler alert, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> sorry, maybe I'll throw that a few seconds earlier. I haven't uh, seen that one. Oh, darn. <laughs> no, you're okay. You're okay. But anyway, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a death sentence to do that. Even so far as in 2017, which was just three years ago, which seems like a lifetime ago, given everything that's going on. Say, I think March was three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> March was a long year. So 2017, a live science article says, Basically, it's never possible. It's not going to be possible. And now that just seems like a challenge. Like that seems anytime <laughs> somebody's like, that's never going to happen. They go, watch me, hold my beer. And it's like, 
okay, now you just kind of like, you know, fan that flame. But what I would probably say is it's so incredibly improbable right now that it's probably not going to be something that happens within our lifetime, I would imagine. Watch me. Hold my beer. <laughs> that's what that's what they're doing. Uh, I like that's it. what Canavero's doing. Yeah. Now there was also an article published in it's called Medica, and this is the Journal of Clinical Medicine, and this was published in 2019, claiming that this actually might be possible given some things that would have to be taken care of, like the things that we've mentioned. But when I really looked into this article, they were using all the exact same information that was available for the 2017 article because they were just referencing what had been done with the cadavers with the Canavero study that was published. So even though it was more recent, I was thinking there had been these new developments and I was looking through it and there really weren't citing anything that had happened since 2017. So it seems like we're still operating on the limited information that we have and we need more research and more application. Right. You know, when we kind of look at that and anytime there's new science or anything like this, that seems like kind of science fiction-y, you're going to have skeptics that come out. So, you know, they say, you know, why not demonstrate with animals first? Okay, and so that is a question that will come up from skeptics. Why not do this with animals first before you translate this to human research? And not that I'm going to advocate for that at all for a number of reasons, but they do make a good point of like, why jump straight to like doing this with live people without really demonstrating this in some other way? I would prefer this be done not with animals who can't provide consent for something like that, save for maybe we have good models to suggest that we can do it correctly and that procedure would save the animal's life if they were otherwise in danger were the procedure to be successful. Otherwise, I wouldn't advocate for it. But I do understand the position of like, let's do this in a way that does not sacrifice humans. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense from a standpoint of simplicity too, right? Like, so I feel like our neural network and stuff is so complex and so much, there's so much going on that it might be easier to demonstrate that it's possible on a life form that maybe doesn't have as much complexity. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you can do this with like a a worm or something, then (laughs) move up from there. Yeah. Anyway, and then another one was the a criticism was like that they should be publishing all these new techniques that would enable this process to be the case. They should be publishing all the studies that are showing that this is capable. And they're absolutely right. Like if they are claiming that they're developing these techniques and these strategies and they're conducting these experiments that are successful, they should be publishing those things so that they can be tested and replicated in other places so they can be vetted through a very thorough peer review paradigm and process. Now, to their credit, at least Canavero has published quite a bit of his work on stuff that he has done and talked about it. I don't know how transparent all of it has been. And there's still plenty of gaps in terms of saying like, these are things that we are learning that we can do. And those studies, should they exist, still need to be published. So some of it's happening, more of it needs to happen. So we're at the space where there is just not enough evidence to go forward. There's still a lot of questions that we have though. And we have to kind of start looking at this from the perspective of, you know, if this is something that they're going to continue to pursue, if this is something that humanity and research and science is going to continue to pursue, then we have questions like who gets what body, who gets what cadaver, who goes to get the body? How do you, I mean, there's so many questions I have within that, but who gets what body? How, how do we determine that? Does it end up just being something for the extremely wealthy? You know, like they're faced with a, a situation where they would need a head transplant for some reason, and that becomes available to them. And then how do you choose the donor? Like, cause there, as you said, there are people who are responsible for that body who get to make choices about what happens to it. And so that puts people in a difficult position where you might have exploitation. You might have some unethical things happening. You might put people in a position where they're sort of forced to make choices they don't want to make. And then like, again, if this was a cosmetic thing too, like that starts to cross into some very tricky ethical territory. So, right. 
Another question that's raised here is, if you imagine you have a donor body, and the donor body was healthy enough to support a new head, what about all of the organs and other tissues from that body that could have been used to help a lot more people who needed those organs? So I do get that, like, if we have someone who, like, their entire body is failing, and they need basically all new things, then it doesn't... I don't necessarily say, like, well, there's a lot more people, so we, we want to give them all those things, but I kind of do get that, too. Like, this goes back to the sort of triage episode of, like, I want to treat all life as important, and, like, if we could save 15 lives or one, where should we allocate our time? I wouldn't ever want to be... I would want to save everyone's life. You know, I want to I want to be in that position, and if we had to make that hard choice, it seems like it'd be difficult to argue against saving a lot more people. And so if you could get out some lungs and a heart and a liver and stomach and kidneys and that sort of thing, and, and that would really help someone, then like maybe that's a better way to go. And so that's a question I think that's important. Yeah. And I think another one too is like, why not do this for people with severe spinal cord injuries? Like I think of Christopher Reeves, like, is this something that could be possible for somebody who has such a severe spinal cord injury that they require so much equipment and so much life support to be able to continue to move forward? I mean, he was paralyzed from the neck down. I mean, that's something to look at. Like this might be a possible opportunity for somebody like that. But again, you have those questions of where does the body come from? And what about those organs and all the stuff that you just mentioned? Yeah. And so this to me is like one of the most damning arguments about this, because the one of the hardest things to do is to connect those nerves. And if that was something that they were capable of doing, then you don't have to go to animal models. You don't have to go to like technological models. There are thousands of people around the world or millions of people around the world who have nerve damage that if their nerve repair was that good, we should be using those strategies on those people. Because if we had a lot of evidence to back up the fact that like, you know what? It's not that hard. We have this technique. We have these tools. They all work really well. Anybody's got nerve damage, we can repair it. First of all, Nobel Prize, dude. Like, that's awesome. Like, you win all the money. Right. And second of all, like, yeah, I'd feel a lot more comfortable moving forward with something like a head transplant if that needed to happen, knowing that we'd already demonstrated that nerves could be reconnected in that way. So why not start there? That's such low-hanging fruit with so much awesome application available to it. Right. So anyway, that to me is the most damning one. Now, we did talk a little bit about this idea of a brain transplant. This is also called a whole body transplant, and that's partially because nothing comes with you. You just have the brain. And so again, depicted very accurately in the movie, get out. Darn it. I need to start with that. Spoiler alert about the movie, get out. (laughs) Not that I didn't give it away by bringing it up. Anyway, just kidding. That's not how that would work. But the idea here being that you would pull out the brain. And as I pointed out earlier, just the question here of like, detaching all the other senses it doesn't come with the ears doesn't come with the the mouth or the tongue or the nasal passages like how much do you cut versus how much do you leave just not something that is really possible right i mean again it's just the science isn't there i mean that's what it comes down to the science is simply not there yep okay so now we get to really dig into the fun of this which is the real psychological implications of this, particularly from a behavioral perspective. But there is something I wanted to bring up, which is talking about how people deal with prosthetics, generally speaking. We did an episode, I believe in 2019 on phantom limb, which is when a limb is amputated or any part of the body really, but the limbs are pretty large. So there's that. Yeah. When those are amputated, then we often have the feeling of experiencing pain where that once was. Well, There's also some research for people when they get prosthetics that that can help diminish the experience of phantom limb pain. But for some people, they still do experience phantom limb pain, even with that prosthetic there. 
And so they feel pain in a part of their body that doesn't have the proprioceptive nerve endings to feel pain. And there's complicated reasons for that. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that episode and probably all the episodes. I mean, it's been a while, so you may as well give them all a listen again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're, we're listening a whole bunch as we go through. So just listen to every one of them. Yeah. But like, if you look at the research of people who in that episode, we also talked about mirror therapy, where if you hold a mirror at such an angle that it looks visually like you have that limb. So there's this whole thing about what happens when we transplant these parts of our bodies, when we get cadavers and we get those things and how people deal with those psychologically. And although a lot of times they are favorable, there are people that even if their body accepts them, they mentally don't accept them. They experience so much trauma and anguish about having that cadaver that they can't. And the surgery ends up being a failed surgery and they have to, they get it removed again, which is like super traumatic. It just raises so many questions about like what happens when somebody does get that head transplant and what happens if they just go through that psychological trauma. I mean, I remember reading somewhere that one of the skeptics about this had said something along the lines of like, if somebody does get a head transplant, they would be in immense mental pain, let alone physical pain, just because of the issues with nerve connections. So it's like, you've got all these things that we just don't have any idea about. And obviously it's one of those things too, where with psychology and just kind of with science in general, there's always going to be uncharted territory. So we can't make a guess on what's going to happen next, but you can pull that research and say, hey, this is what happens with something that's on a more minor scale. What could this look like on a more major scale? And so I would imagine that head transplants are pretty traumatic. Yeah. And I think about like, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time reflecting about how familiar we are with our own bodies, but you know, people, there's a saying, like, I know it like the back of my hand, like you probably don't know the back of your hand all that well, but you know, it probably a lot better than a stranger's <laughs> hand. Right. And so all of a sudden, if everything on you is new and foreign and strange, that could be a very jarring experience. And honestly, if you wanted to try this out, you might try putting on some kind of costume that mimics what a human body would look like if it was really different and see how it feels different for you to just to walk around and even just know that it's there or more importantly, you'll start to forget that it's there and then you'll like catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror or you'll happen to notice it and you'll have this jarring reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's quite an adjustment. You know, and another thing too that it's important to note as we go through this is like we're more than just the brains in our head, right? Like we have like this very unique experience. We have these memories. We have all these other things that contribute to what make us who we are and contribute to why we do what we do, right? So we have... All of these things that contribute, and it's not just this like fatty organ that's sitting inside of our skull that makes us who we are. We've got all these other things. Yeah. So a huge part of our psychology and how we go about navigating our world, while yes, our brain is very, very important and one of those things, we take for granted the fact that our height is actually something that we are very much used to. And actually, I've definitely heard from people that change their shoe size a lot, but if you've ever worn something that made you taller, that actually changes in a subtle way the way that you experience the world. Or if you've worn those glasses that make you look shorter, or if you've ever done a VR game where your height changes and your relative distance to the ground, that's one thing. The other one is like how well you know your muscles. And like, even if you don't have a lot or you do have a lot of muscles, you just get used to moving in a particular way that you sort of know what you're capable of. You know how far to reach to open a door. You know how to move all the muscles in your fingers to accomplish a certain task. Well, if none of those are yours and you have no history using them, you're basically starting over. 
So like every part of our body is involved in our psychology in one way or another. And when that is changed or different or affected by something, you have to adjust to that and you have to learn something new and it changes then the way that you think about and move about your world. So even little things like how much you weigh, how far apart your feet are, how good your balance is, what your bones feel like and how they support your body. When all of that's different, like one of those changes might be fairly subtle, but when every single one of them is different across the board, like that's going to radically impact how you go about navigating the world, which means that now when you experience something that you had experienced before, you're going to experience it differently. It's going to change your perception of that type of event. This is maybe a cool perspective taking exercise, by the way, just thinking about <laughs> yeah. like what it's like to be so physically be someone else. The whole thing I'm getting at here is that the psychology we experience is linked inherently to the way that we navigate through our world, which is linked inherently to our bodies. And therefore, we can't just transplant them and expect that we will have the we'll be able to transition seamlessly into that new environment. We're going to have a different experience of the world. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, it took me a lot of words, so you maybe could have. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you nailed that. I mean, because that's exactly it. Like, you know, this does have to do with our learning and our experience. And so I think about like just the difference of riding a different bike, right? Like I get on one bike and I get on a different bike and I have to learn how to ride that bike. But like, imagine doing that with your literal entire body, right? Yes. Everything that you do, everything, every move that you make, everything that you sense, how sensitive you are to like temperatures and pressure and pain and like where hair grows on your body. When all, when all that changes, like it's going to affect how you are. And so you are going to be a little bit of a different person and maybe a lot, a bit of a different person. Mm -hmm. And you're going to think and behave differently in the world that you live in. And that's going to affect how you feel about it and your overall mental well-being. Now, there is this cool thing, that, as I talked about sort of with robots, we've been able to demonstrate, not you and I, but humans, this ability to do things where we like link electronics to our brains and then we learn to control those things just with our quote unquote thoughts. Now, technically, if you're going to go that route, then virtually everything you do in your body, you control with your thoughts. In our brains, we have learned to coordinate our muscles in a particular way that has shaped the way that we use our brains and we coordinate those muscles and whatnot. Adding a new like electronic limb or some controller that we move is the exact same process. We're just shaping and learning how to navigate that thing. So it's not unthinkable that we could replace all of the most of the parts of our body with robotic pieces. Again, with the major caveat that like our brains need like calories and oxygen and blood very consistently. So you got to have your major organs at the very least. But, you know, most of the rest of it, like it could happen. But this is enormously complex because not only do you have the fact that you can move those things, but there is feedback that we get from our limbs so that when we move in a particular way, we get feedback from our limbs about when we touch something and how hard we touch something and how to manipulate it in such a way that it does what we want it to. And you'll find how incredibly difficult this is to move something as simple as like a pincher grip on a machine. If you're learning it for the first time, even when you have your hands, like it's not just an extension of your hands. It is a brand new thing. And so it might be easier in a sense, but you don't get the proprioceptive feedback you would from the limbs and it'd be learning all over again. And that's exactly it. Like it changes literally your entire experience of the world. Like just the fact that you're going to grip something different. Like, I mean, I, you see, <laughs> you see like demonstrations in movies. I know this is a goofy example, but you'll see a demonstration where somebody gets like a robotic limb and they grab an apple and they crush the apple because they don't know how to control the pressure. Right. Yeah, exactly. But like, that's a real thing. Like when you see, and, and you can actually go look at like, maybe not the robotic limbs part, but just like teaching somebody like a pincer grip in like a, if you work with 
PTs, like physical therapists or occupational therapists. Yeah. Like working in that realm, reteaching somebody how to have a pincer grip is difficult in itself, right? So now imagine doing that in an entirely different body. Yeah. So you're learning to control all these things and it is just that it's learning. And so you have to relearn how to use your entire body all over again. And even as I said, like controlling a robotic arm that changes your psychological interaction with the world because it is now different in how you respond to it and how it responds to you. And even as you become increasingly fluent, your orientation of things around you will permanently shift. Let's say that you have a third robotic arm coming off of your shoulder. Like how awesome would right. that be? First of all, like love it. That'd be rad. But like you're, you're definitely going to notice how other people see you. They're going to look at you differently. Imagine getting dressed and all the complications of that. It's like, do I like cut a hole in my shirt or what goes on there? Like if you're sitting somewhere, is it going to be comfortable to have that thing hanging off the arm? Or do you want to have it resting on something when you're just generally moving around your environment? Do you need to make sure that it's not getting shut in doors on accident or that you don't swing it into things and hit things? And then what about like we already have dominance of one hand. If we have three hands to choose from. Then do we start favoring more than one hand or do we only still favor one or do we shift where our dominance is like all of that stuff changes and becomes important and and all that stuff changes our brains, too. So it is just worth considering that, like, this is all a bunch of learning and that our learning does not just happen in our brains. Right. I mean, I guess I, my thought would be like, if I have a third robotic arm, why don't I have a fourth one? I mean, yeah, I mean, go full doc Ock on this and just get a that's bunch what I'm of, saying. Why not? Yeah. So. I guess with that, it's probably worth looking at just kind of, I mean, probably worth wrapping this up, right? Like at the end of the day, there's a lot to consider with this thing. And we just are in entirely uncharted territories. We have no idea where this is going to go, what's going to happen next. We really don't know. We don't have enough information. Yeah. The straight up answer is a head transplant will not work at this point in time. Right. We don't have any reason to believe it's going to work anytime soon. I mean, I think 10 to 15 years is way too ambitious to say that that's even likely to happen maybe a century from now, but probably not. I honestly don't think we'll ever reach a full head transplant point, mostly because I think we will have obviated the need for it by the time it would be something that would be technologically relevant. So I don't see this ever being a thing that we do in any widespread way if it's ever accomplished even once. So one thing I did want to add was there was someone in Russia who had volunteered to be the first live person to experiment with. Uh, this is someone who had like a severe muscle wasting disease where they were losing all coordination of their body, but his brain was otherwise intact. He was going to be a volunteer to try this for the first time, but he has since decided to not participate in this and it has withdrawn. I believe that what happened was that a bunch of other scientists reached out and were like, you're going to die if you do this. So <laughs> yeah, I think he's take he's taking his chances with the accommodations that have been afforded to him from years of established science and things like wheelchairs and, assistive technology and that sort of thing. Right. That seems like a safer, a safer route at this point in time. So anyway, I think the, the take home points we're hitting on that this is not capable and I don't think there's anything, I don't, I don't have anything else to say on the take home points really. Yeah, neither do I. I mean, we're just at the space where the science doesn't exist. Don't get a head transplant and we'll see what happens in the next 100 years. Yeah. And even if you did, I guess one thing I would say is like, it would likely be a radically different experience from the, from it would not be so simple as like you have all your memories and consciousness and everything's good. It would be a wildly different world to live in for you. Right. All right. I like it. Okay. Let's do some recommendations. Recommendations. 
I'm going to recommend a book trilogy called the Mistborn series. Although tech, he did add like two more books, so that maybe the Mist, just call the Mistborn series at this point by Brandon Sanderson. These are fantasy books. It's set in this alternate universe reality thing the idea here is that you have people who for whatever reason can consume metal and when they do they can digest it in such a way that they describe it as burning it and that gives them certain powers and depending on the type of metal and also depending on the type of alloy and most people can only consume or burn if if you will one type but the way that they treat this in this the whole thing is sort of leading up to this big revolution where you have this sort of dictator and some people are trying to take him down. I love the series. I think it's just super fun and really interesting. And there's so many cool implications of it. So that's my recommendation. Cool. And I don't think I've recommended it before, but if I have, I'm sorry, go read it. I'm not sorry. Go read it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Don't be sorry. That's there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. <laughs> All right. Speaking of guilty pleasures, my recommendation this week is a latex bodysuit. <laughs> no, that's, that's just what's in the notes. Those are shopping lists you're reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I was, uh, they don't have those at Publix. It's a problem. So actually, mine is a book this week, too. It's not a book series, but I spend a lot of time doing public speaking and developing talks for work. And so, you know, we can always do better with that. And so I'm actually reading a book called TED Talks, the official TED Guide to Public Speaking. And that sounds on the surface, not super enticing or maybe like something that you're like, oh, yeah, I really need to sink my teeth in that. But what's really (laughs) cool is it does give you some really cool insight on when you're developing a talk and what you want to talk about, how you want to talk about it. It's not necessarily just about public speaking. It's about how to design your talk so that it is the appropriate medium for the information you're trying to get across. So, you know, there might be some types of or some content that you develop that's better in writing or it might be better in a public talk, or it might be better in like a long form podcast type. They do a really good job of breaking all that down and giving tips and tricks and stuff. So I've been really impressed with it. Shockingly, I've been really like, I can't put it down. It's a really great read. That's actually super fascinating. I am inspired by your recommendation. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and if you're going to listen to anybody talk about public speaking, then TED Talks is the place to go. Yeah, man. Or TEDx or, you know, the government the president never mind i'm gonna we're we're just gonna transition out of this did you get a head transplant (laughs) sorry with a rock (laughs) it's just a a stone now i just have a boulder on my head (laughs) on my neck no i don't have anything else i think we covered what we need to today awesome all right well if you have a head transplant or you're thinking of getting one definitely let us know if you are canavera and you would like to contradict us feel free to do so if you are somebody else and you want to say something else about something else then that's great we definitely want to hear it so message us on social media or send us an email at info at podcast. we love hearing from everybody for all reasons all the time if you like the show and you'd like to support us but you don't want to give us any money that's understandable you can go leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts that does help us out that makes us look better so that people look at our show and they're like hey this has high ratings i should listen to it which is true so (laughs) so anyway this is abraham and this is shane and we are out see ya you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. 
Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.